All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to a, another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. With you today is myself, Josh Patterson, and also my good friend and brother, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, dude? Oh, man, I'm tired, Josh. I spent eight hours yesterday playing the drums. <laughs> wow. Well done. That is quite tiring. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, uh, so I played in my church services in the morning, which was like five hours. I guess it was probably more than eight hours. Uh, we did, you know, rehearsal from seven and then the church service went to noon. Um, and then I did a worship night as well in which rehearsal started at two 30 and we were done at seven 30. So I guess it was 10 hours of drumming, but if you take out the sermon times and all that, I guess it was nine or eight. So hmm. well done. Day. Yeah. yeah that's a long day. I did not play drums that long yesterday. I, uh, <laughs> we did like a, for like the food hub thing that we have going on right now, we did some deliveries yesterday, um, yeah. with some of my students, but. And then I was supposed to have a hockey game yesterday. I was going to sub for another team uh, because they needed a sub. And then I'm in my car all excited because I love playing hockey. And then I get a text like as I'm pulling out of the driveway, hey, the other team forfeited no game. Oh, man. Like, ah, damn it. So, you what know, crushed, crushed my spirit. Well, really quick before we go on to our guest, I just, uh, Josh, I want to I want to pick a, a bone with you. Uh-oh. Um, and this goes back to when we worked together. Um, do you remember when we when we worked together and I used to give you and your wife crap because you wouldn't ever sing to any of the music like when I was the worship pastor? Yep. I still don't I'm, sing in church. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it's just because you don't like me because I talked with Chad um, and after Chad was your was the worship director at the next place you worked and he said you guys like or on your knees with your arms raised and like singing at the top of your lungs and just like, you know, like you guys were like weeping during the worship. So, so like, that's what I've been told many, many, many times. I'm pretty sure it was just me. That you did. No, I think you're lying. Unless I was like in some kind of like mental space where I have, you know, don't recollect at all what you're talking about. I think you just made that up. <laughs> well, so for the listeners, I know that Josh and I seem like we're having our own little conversation over here, but basically Josh and I, when we work together at the church, um, Josh and Noel enjoy worship. They enjoy church services, but for whatever reason, just like singing along just isn't their thing. Um, 
And that's okay. I mean, you don't have to be, you don't, you're not required to, but I remember seeing Noel, Josh's wife out in the, out in the service and she wasn't singing and she had her arms folded. And I was like, oh man, I must've really, picked Noel. <laughs> like, I must've done something to really make her mad. And I, I don't, I thought of that because of all the church stuff I was doing yesterday. So I just thought I would mention that because it's a pretty funny story. That is, yeah, it is funny. Yeah. That, and Chad will tell you the same thing. That's just Noel and I never, that was never really our thing. Um, so I enjoyed sorry, being Noel, like, if you, if you're actually listening to this, Noel, sorry, I called you out. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> She's not listening. Um, <laughs> anyways, we do, we do have a, a guest with us uh, today and somebody who I've been in communication with for a while. Um, they've kind of been following the, the show since it started uh, a little over two years ago. And so it's exciting that uh, we finally are here together to have a conversation. And that person is Jonathan Puddle. Jonathan, how's it going, man? Doing good. I did not play any drums yesterday, but I did install cement board in my bathroom renovation project, which was very heavy and exhausting. So yeah. I, I think my body is perhaps in a similar place as yours, Marty, yeah. right now. <laughs> no, yeah. that. Well, you know, in, installing cement board is probably... Um, it's probably a tougher job, I would say. But at the same time, I mean, I don't know because I've never done that. So we can just <laughs> we can call it a wash. How about that? <laughs> um, but it's great to be with you guys. I'm so super excited. Yeah, Jonathan, we're glad to have you. And uh, we have a question that we ask every guest that comes on the show. Um, it's a really big deal. Um, sometimes we've actually canceled. Um, we've actually stopped the show um, and not had it because the guest had a bad answer. Um, uh, so uh, playing it up like it's a big deal, but uh, who is your favorite ice hockey team? Okay. That's very politically charged because <laughs> I'm from Canada. And so, and certainly in the geographic region that I live in, the appropriate answer would be the Maple Leafs, okay. uh, which I should just say just the Leafs. That's what we would say. Now I've got a lot of friends out Ottawa way. So, you know, that would, lean towards senators and I've got a lot of friends in Montreal. Uh, but the fact is I don't really care for hockey. I uh, will happily watch a game in the company of friends, mm -hmm. but for my part, it doesn't do much for me. Mm -hmm. uh, fun anecdote during the NH NHL lockout, uh, whenever that was like seven or eight years ago, uh, I was living in Finland and I was traveling back to Toronto for work and I'm sitting beside this guy who's just like, he's just huge. Like he's tall, he's super jacked and we're just chatting about stuff. And I'm like, yeah, what do you do for a living? And he's like, I play hockey. And I'm just kind of like, okay, so like, what were you doing in Finland? He's like, well, I was, I was playing hockey <laughs> and I, I was kind of like, Oh, Oh. And so this, this guy, I forget, I think he played for Cincinnati uh, or somewhere. Like it wasn't a big, big team. And, and he, yeah, he was like, yeah, well, I went to Europe and since the NHL is not doing anything. And I was kind of like, why are you flying with me back here in, in coach, man? Like sitting side by side, his legs compared to mine were like, like tree trunks, you know, and he's all like huge, but uh, obviously I'll have actually have to say the mighty ducks because I'm a child of the eighties. All right. Well, Classic. that's, that's a solid answer too. And I'm also really glad you didn't say the Detroit Red Wings with your proximity to Detroit because obviously my, not. Yeah. My wife is a Red Wings fan and her whole family is. And I just, she, cause she's from Detroit. So she's allowed to be because she's from there, but still, uh, 
causes lot yeah. causes lots of tension in the marriage then huh marty <laughs> well i mean because the, when when the red wings and the blackhawks were in the same conference it caused a lot of trouble but now <laughs> the red wings like actually suck for the first time in decades and on top of that like they don't really play each other all that often but if they ever no, 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 they, they, they don't suck they're in a rebuilding phase oh right. yeah that's right, that's right. <laughs> it's all about how you rename things marty it's helpful yeah, that's right. Uh, isn't that what Rob Bell told us to? to yes, to view it things is. Different? Yeah, yeah. If if they ever played each other in the Stanley Cup, that would be. I'm not sure how that would go over, but, um, well, Jonathan, we have. So it's great to have you here. Like I said, and uh, just to kind of get an idea of who you are, could you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, what your faith upbringing was? Um, I know this, but the listeners may not. You're from the coolest place on the planet. So just kind of give us an update about who you are and what you do. Totally. Well, uh, that could be a reference to any number of places because <laughs> Canada's pretty awesome, but I suspect it's a reference to New Zealand where I was born and raised. Uh, my parents were missionaries <laughs> when I was a kid. And so we traveled kind of all around the world, uh, settled back in New Zealand, uh, eventually moved to Toronto uh, in Canada. And then, my wife and I moved to Finland after we'd been married a couple of years, lived there for five or six years before we came back to Canada ourselves with our kids. So I've kind of been all over. I was raised charismatic leaning evangelical. I then joined the Toronto Blessing in the 90s. And so was like as charismatic as one can get pretty much. Uh, I still serve within a church that has kind of grown out of that movement and so very much value the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, but have been deeply impacted and transformed by a vast variety of traditions and expressions of the faith. Uh, I, I like to tell people that I drink from as many streams as I can get my mouth to pretty much. And so went through a big kind of faith deconstruction journey for myself about what year is it? 2020? Of course it's 2020. Uh, I don't know, I was 10, 15, 12 years ago, a while ago now, and uh, came came through that just, just young, I'm just going to say it, head over heels in love with Jesus and, and al allowing that love to reinform my understanding of every aspect of human life and Christian religion and so on and so forth. So my wife and I didn't attend church for 10 years. We... We had plenty of believers that we were in fellowship with, if that is a box that someone needs to hear me check. But uh, we ended up rocking up to this church uh, nearby four or five years ago, just kind of on a whim because our friends were, were helping lead it. And we both just felt the spirit say, hunker down here, serve these people, practice loving these people, take care of their children. And I, I was as surprised as anybody. So since then, we've been volunteer children's pastors at a uh, small community church. And we love it. It's wonderful. It's hard. It's awkward. It's all the things that church is. It's messy. But, um, but there's no pretense. And, and everyone's just hungry for real encounter with God, for, for the promise of transformed lives and all that kind of stuff. So in addition, I've spent most of my career in charities, uh, Christian charities and churches. I've been a business administrator, marketer, publicist, publisher, IT director, all manner of things. And then uh, 
two or three years ago, I quit my job to focus on writing and podcasting full-time. So uh, I've got a show. This is my first uh, book that's just come out, You Are Enough, Learning to Love Yourself the Way God Loves You. And it's, uh, you know, terrifying and exciting, you know. Uh, I probably make about as much money off my podcast as you guys make off your podcast, right? Hey, hey, make it rain. So that's a big fat zero for most people out there um, or close to it. But yeah, that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell. Sweet. Right yeah. on, man. Well, awesome. um, yeah, in, in line with, uh, so you mentioned a little bit the, the deconstruction process and our show is called Rethinking Faith. And so a question we've been asking uh, our guests more recently is what is perhaps the most important thing uh, that you rethought in your faith journey? If you could pick one. Hmm. Yes, it would be God's distance from us. I, I actually, my grandparents had Romans, is it, is it Romans 8, 38 to 39, I think, where, you know, for, for I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love, you know, not, not heights, nor depths, nor angels, nor demons, like any, Paul, I love Paul sums it up, nor any created thing. Like if I didn't cover all the bases, nothing can separate us from God's presence. Uh, the tradition that I grew up within, because it was generally evangelical. I mean, the evangelical movement outside of North America is a little bit different. A lot of the really polarizing things found in especially like U.S. evangelicalism are, are not quite the same trigger issues outside of North America. But the U.S. does export really significant like religious hegemony. And so there is influence. And one of the things that was sort of kind of implicit to the evangelical experience growing up for me, as it is for many, is this idea that God is distant because of sin. Because of our sin, God can't come close to us. God can't have anything to do with us. God, you know, is sort of over here. And only because of like the kind of charitable rescue of Jesus can God deign to come to our level. And um, I understand there's reasons for that. And I understand also that our experience often really seems like that's true right? Like God often feels very far from us. So we have ample reason to think that's the case, except it's not the case. And uh, God is right here. God holds all things together. Matter itself is held together by the good grace of God moment by moment by moment. And so that in many ways, I think growing up as a kid, reading that, that verse, it, it actually forms probably the bedrock of my theology today. I had to journey for a while and come back to it. But that was, I think, the biggest thing that I really kind of had to, has changed my faith is this thing that God is not fragile. God is not offended. There's no question in my mind that God experiences grief over many of our actions, but it doesn't change his position to us. He's still right here. Just like with my, just like, I mean, you guys who have kids, right? Like there's plenty of things our children do that are gross and disgusting and, and we want to pull away, but we know when we're doing well that we don't pull away. And I think if we can see that about God, uh, that can be very ch shifting and transformative for us. Yeah, for sure. Right on. That's a solid answer. And that's, that's also something too, like just for me personally, the, um, one of my major shifts in the past couple of years or so is, is exactly in line with that. And so 
Um, you mentioned your your new book, uh, which is called You Are Enough, Learning to Love Yourself the Way God Loves You. Um, and by the way, this is fantastic, super wonderful. Um, I love the the format. So listeners, it's a it's a 30-day journey. It's kind of laid out um, like short reading, just a couple pages a day. And then there's a guided meditation that follows. Uh, and it's just like, it's awesome. It's exactly what I needed where I am currently. Um, so that's a, that was a huge help. I really appreciate that, Jonathan. And I think I was telling you before, um, before we started talking here, uh, I'm going to actually, I want to go back and like go through this again, um, but slower, um, you know, at a, at a slower pace. So uh, that's going to continue to be helpful. So thank you. You're welcome. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's actually crazy. Like it's, it's insane. We can, <laughs> I, I can fill you in more later. I don't want to take up all the time with myself. Uh, but yeah, so something that's interesting though. Um, I remember uh, the day when I first saw that this was coming out um, was interesting because I had seen someone on Facebook post uh, the same day, a, a book they were reading and the title was literally the exact opposite. It's something along the lines of you are not enough and that's okay or something like that. Yeah. And so I was like, huh, interesting. And so the, the title of your book kind of goes against what so many people uh, growing up hearing, you know, hearing and believing. Many, many of us grew up hearing like the exact opposite, right? You're not enough. In fact, you suck. And without Jesus, you're not shit. <laughs> so can you kind of to speak to that a little bit? Totally. Uh, and I actually really value and respect that. Uh, I, I less love the people who attack me and essentially just post links to um, Gospel Coalition articles. <laughs> but uh, we, have, we have a world of evidence around us that reaffirms that we're not enough, right? Like, the, like I was not enough for COVID. COVID broke me, man. Uh, lockdown with my kids was terrible. There, there's all this stuff that that tells us that we're not enough and that we desperately need something outside of ourselves. Yes, that that's true. In many, many ways, that's true. But um, let's let's address this a couple of ways, right? You're going to run into things throughout your life that are going to overwhelm you. And you're going to find that you're not enough for them, right? Like many of us were not enough to weather this year without turning to unhealthy, destructive coping mechanisms, whether that's food or alcohol or porn or Netflix or whatever that is for you, right? Like there's, there's all this stuff that, that we are not enough for. But when I spend time with God, when I listen to the voice of love, what I hear that voice say to me so often is things like, my son, I love you. You don't have to accomplish anything. You don't have to become anyone. You are enough for me. So, from the outset, you are enough is not something that I really say to me. <laughs> it's, it's really what I hear the Father say to me, and I'm, I'm as slow to believe it as anybody else is. Uh, so, so as I was wrestling with my own 
enoughness. And I, and as, as I explained early on in the book, I went on this big journey myself because I had all this dysfunction and I really felt like God was saying to me, Jonathan, you need to learn to love yourself. You need to learn to become responsible for the love need in your life and stop blaming everybody else for not loving you when they do. And it's actually you who doesn't love you. And so you see everything filtered through your own lens of self-hatred. And the more I sat down with that and looked into a lot of my evangelical beliefs, and, and this is not to, to poo-poo on evangelicalism, but just generally, I think even as, as humanity, so much of what we have propped up is self-hatred. Um, I think in, in many ways, we've looked at that scripture in Jeremiah that's like, you know, the heart is desperately wicked, and we've stopped the conversation. We've said, Jeremiah, and thus God, is making an anthropological statement for all people for all time. And that I don't think is a robust or honest reading of scripture because uh, right there in Matthew 22 is, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I always kind of read that like love your neighbor and hate yourself or love your neighbor instead of yourself. But that's not what scripture says. Uh, you know, Proverbs 4.23, God, you're hot with all diligence for out of it is the wellspring of life. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, like Ephesians. So, so there's, there's a ton in here that I think we have to learn to hold in tension, that uh, there are going to be tons of situations in life that we need help. We need community. We need God. There's no question that we need uh, a Savior to deliver us from our self-destruction. But that's not because of some kind of charity. It's because he really loves us. He created us in his image. He created us to be far more sufficient than with him than we are readily than we will readily believe about ourselves. And so as you journey into the voice that calls you enough that you don't have to do anything to please him or her or it or however you conceive of the divine it's very challenging. You know, it's, it's not like I get to sit here and go like, I'm enough, end of story. It's challenging and it's hard day by day because I continually am faced with all the evidence in my own life that says I'm not. And so I hold that and I say, okay, God, I don't feel like I am, but you tell me I am. So I'm going to do my best to agree with your voice. Yeah. And man, I think also not, not only are we as, you know, as just humans faced with that evidence that we aren't enough around us day by day, but I, I also think as, as believers, there are so many different upbringings in which we are told some people are, some people hold a higher view on our, our, our nomenclature of being a sinner. Totally. Uh, than than others do, and and I, and I so it depends on sometimes who you talk to. So you might talk to somebody who sees things the way you see it, and they're so encouraging, and you feel great. But then you'll talk to somebody else, and they'll be like, "Well, no way, man! Like we're all just down and dirty, awful, total wretches." And I heard someone say, um, "I can't remember when, and I can't remember who it was recently though. A couple months ago, they said, you know, I have a real problem with the song Amazing Grace because I don't see Jesus call us a wretch anywhere in Scripture.'" And how, how can we go about singing this song and loving the song? And everyone talks about how this is the greatest hymn written of all time. And yet it has one of the, the, the most wrong lines in it. Are we sinners? Yes. 
Have we sinned? Yes. But Jesus never called us wretches. And uh, uh, when we stay there in that place, we, we put ourselves in this position to like walk around with the woe is me feeling at all times. <laughs> and, totally. uh, and, and so to me, I mean, everything you're saying is, you know, I, I'm right there with you. I actually um, am a part of a more charismatic movement right now. Like my, I'm part of the AGE church. Um, and um, I will be honest and say that I feel better about myself part of a charismatic church than I have when I, when I worked at a reformed church or sure. when I worked in different places. Um, but another element we kind of wanted to talk about is um, one of the most important elements of spiritual formation, I think, is how we image God. Our image of God, I mean, it can impact everything. Do you have any thoughts on uh, how we image God? Yeah, for sure. I, and I could totally agree. It's it's critically important, right? Like it, it is going to form so much of your worldview, which is which is why for me, to your first question, to your earlier question on on the shift in my own faith, the closeness of God has been radically transformative. I think that I hold I hold a couple of things in tension as I consider imaging God. On the one hand, we're talking about divine life that is multi-part, three-in-one, non-gendered, a, a community of love who constantly empties, whose members empty themselves into the other endlessly, who happens to hold the universe together, like at a metaphysical level. You know, when people talk about like, oh, you know, I'm waiting for the universe to show me my path. Like in some ways, I'm like, yeah, I get that. Like God is so much bigger and weirder than we can possibly, I think, get our heads around. So, okay, let's let's take that whole amorphous kind of nebulous divine concept and hold it up here on the one side. And, and yet there is a deeply personal, uh, imminent, relatable as nature to this nebulous divine everywhere to God. And so it's like, even in the cloud, even in the burning bush, even in the whatever, a voice comes out. Like, that's wild. Like, it speaks to us. It communicates. It desires to be known and to know. And if that wasn't enough, this God, and I mean, God is even a weird word. Like, I, I mean, I, I think it's really telling that when you go through the scriptures, you know, the Jews alone had, as I don't know how many, hundreds of different kinds of names for for this divine divine love and i think that's that's very telling for us but that ult ultimately this god incarnates itself in human flesh right like it, it it really boggles my mind to consider that that god in this in the old scriptures the old i shouldn't use that word but god in the hebrew scriptures says don't create a carved image of me like the other nations and and to to actually see that as a leaning forward to the fact that one day I'm going to walk amongst you and my image will be carved into in like your flesh. Uh, that's beautiful to me. And so that actually God comes and like 
is born in scandalous scenario, uh, is pushed out of a woman, human woman's vagina, like that God would choose to be nurtured by God's own creation for nine months. And then, you know, to suckle at the breast of a human that God created, the level of intimacy and of backwardsness of that whole picture is just utterly mind blowing to me. You know, and then his ministry peaks in his 30s, right? I, are you guys in your 30s? Like, I'm in my 30s. Like, I know how much I get run down by everybody telling me, like, oh, you're young. Oh, the passion of youth. You just need a few more years before you'll stop saying that crazy stuff. And I'm like, the character of God is most represented to us as a 33-year-old man full of passion and crazy stuff hanging from a cross. So, there's just, I, there's so much in there, right? Um I think, I think what's really key is that we see God as loving, as generous, as generative, as right here and right now, um, as relatable, as, as willing to suffer with us. I, I just had uh, Scott Erickson, Scott the Painter, on, on my podcast, and he said to me, Jonathan, if Jesus wept wasn't in Scripture, I, I, I'd be out. Because I need to know that God cries at funerals the same way I do. And I was like, come on. Come on. So those are some thoughts on imaging God. You'll notice in the book, um, I don't use, generally, I don't use gendered pronouns for God just because I know for some people it's a stumbling block and I don't want it to be a stumbling block. So you can go anywhere you like with that. I think God is really quite provisional with us in a lot of the theology that he just gives to us. He's like, hey, so use this until it doesn't produce good fruit for you anymore. And then go over here and use this until this one stops producing good fruit for you anymore. And so if the concept of God as loving father is really, really hard for you to get your head around because of like events in your life, then pick a different image of God. Say, Holy Spirit, how do you want me to relate to you? And then roll with that. And so I'm, I'm pretty big on God comes to us in ways that meets us where we are and, um, and will image himself to us in all these different ways. I know that's a lengthy answer, but hopefully that. No, it's perfect. Yeah, it's so good. It, and it, it brought a few things to mind. Um, it's funny you mentioned Scott. We're interviewing him later today. Um, <laughs> oh, you'll have a blast. What yeah. a guy. What yeah. a guy. That'll be fun. Yeah, that, actually, that was um, Marty sent me the link to, uh, to his new book. It was so excited. I was like, dude, this is dope. So we got him on. That'll be fun. But uh, with the, I want to tell a funny story real quick about the gender thing. And then I have something I want to add. But um we were talking about like the, the gender or non-genderness of God with uh, some of my college students on a Zoom call recently. And I said something about like, yeah, God doesn't have a penis. And there was a mom in the background of the Zoom call who just started laughing. And he, she, <laughs> she was like, yeah, and he doesn't have a vagina either. Or perhaps he has both. And like it killed the whole, con- like it was done. Like all the college kids done. It was hilarious. Uh, but anyway, Uh, I think what's so interesting about um, our images of God too is like so many of us uh, or a lot of people grew up kind of going around believing that God was like this hard as nails judge with a giant stick. Totally. (laughs) And and so, so we're afraid, Oh, forgive my dogs. Um, They are also apparently afraid of God. Um, (laughs) But uh, we grow up. All dogs go to heaven, Josh. Did you see that movie when you were a kid? Oh yeah, for sure. It's true. It's true. Many times. Yeah, it's true. Um, but yeah, so like if we grow up with like 
the believing in that kind of like authoritarian vindictive God, then that's going to come out in our character, our character. Like we're going to have our theology is going to be shaped that way, how we treat people, all this stuff. So it's like just such an important, um, yeah. Yeah. Aspect of things to me. And it's very destructive to, oh, to, the, to the human structure, like to the human concept. I mean, science has proven this, like that, that the human personality development, the psyche uh, is deeply damaged by those kinds of figures, by those, especially when the figure that we have been told is meant to bring nurture or the, the, the figure that is meant to bring safety and nurture to our life is also one who brings pain. Um, and then calls it righteousness is uniquely destructive to to the human soul. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then to it, it almost, it seems like words then just stop meaning things. Like how can you say God is love and then also flip and say, Oh, just kidding. That's it. Um, David Bentley Hart hammers <laughs> that point in um, that all shall be saved where he's like, look, if, if we're saying that God operates in eternal torture chamber and that God is good and that this is righteous, then a lot of our words like good cease to have any practical meaning for our <laughs> right. lives anymore. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Yes. That's crazy. Um, but also too, like what's interesting with the, you know, imaging God thing, um, something that I've been, you know, exploring more recently, I guess, in the past couple of years is just um, oftentimes growing up uh, within, you know, the evangelical world, um, or we'll, we'll make it larger, the institutionalized um, church, church or religion. Yeah, we have the, the idea is that God is like in this box. And here's God, we have God, you need us come to us and get God. Um, but the problem is like, God, maybe is in the box, but God absolutely transcends the box. So God can never be found uh, within this box. And so I think we need, um, I personally am, am going through like, you know, what perhaps could be called a dark night of the soul. And um, St. John of the Cross talks about like how, when we're experiencing these kind of things, we need our images of God shattered so that we can see what God is actually like. Mm. And that's, that's the process of, of, of growth um, have you read uh, Have you read The Ascent of Mount Carmel? I have not, but I have it on my shelf. <laughs> it's devastating. Okay. I, I went through, I, I interrupt you not because I want to interrupt your sacredness, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've, I've gone through some of those seasons. I remember a friend gave me Dark Night of the Soul and it was very helpful. Mm. And a mentor walked me through a bunch of the material in The Ascent of Mount Carmel. Mm-hmm. And it's like to to know everything, meaning really meaning to know God, we have to pass through knowing nothing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. To have anything, we have to pass through having nothing. Mm-hmm. And it is a very uh, painful and potentially confusing process. So I have great compassion for you. Right on. But, I, but I would also say that the the refining fire of that is worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and that's um, yeah, that's that's kind of one of the reasons too. Your your book has been so helpful because uh, part of I mean I'll just I'll go off script. Um, part of the issue, and, and Marty and I have had you know great uh, length conversations about this, but. Um, I've, I've, you know, served and worked in the church world for about five years. Um, 
but like part of me like during covid is the gift that covid has been for me um is the gift of uh contemplative practice i got a spiritual director um all this kind of stuff and so the journey inward and and connecting with um sorry all the things and uh you know within myself and um going through literally exactly what you had to talk about in your book um is kind of showing me a different path that looks different than what i've known um and so i'm trying to figure out what that means <laughs> and what's next and so that's kind of uh what's been going on with that so it's super helpful man it's real it's real and and there are some for for those maybe who are listening and don't totally understand there are some very different currents and threads within the church that have that have understood god's work with humanity very differently even if you roll the clock back um the community of disciples that grew up around john not john the baptist but john the writer of John and Revelation, the Johannine community went in a different geographical and in some ways theological direction from the community more inspired by Peter and Paul, the kind of Israel, uh, Jerusalem, Antioch angle of, of Christian growth. And there's great stuff in all directions. But what's fascinating is that by the time the Romans had really captured and settled into uh, what's today England, the Johannine faith had already come up there and they found a very different flavor of Christianity than they were familiar with from across the sort of Southern Roman empire. And that when you look now today into the roots of the Celtic faith and what the Celtic, uh, the Celtic Christian faith specifically, their expectation to meet God in nature, to meet God in every created thing, is much higher, much, much, much more baseline than the sort of Western Greek faith, Christian faith, which is still very influenced by a kind of Gnostic, the, 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 the created thing is less valuable than the, the spiritual unseen thing. And so, okay, let's say that the spiritual unseen thing is of great value. And then let's reach over here and say, and the created thing is of great value and God loves it all. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, uh, one of my favorites is St. Francis of Assisi. Um, you know, the Franciscan stream of, of faith is just wonderful <laughs> for the exact reasons uh, that you're talking about. Totally. Did Marty freeze? He might have frozen on us. Oh, we lost Marty. Damn. All right, cool. Well, he'll come back. <laughs> so, um, but moving on though, let's um, let's continue this some of this uh, more in internal dialogue stuff. So, you, um, we, we've mentioned a little bit contemplative practice, um, but in your book, you when you talk about uh, turning inwards, you talk about engaging with three. Uh, different uh, voices uh, or things that we have within our mind. Um, can you touch on those three things uh, briefly? Definitely. Yeah, this this has been one of the most fascinating things for me in my own journey, for sure. So uh, this, what I'm describing comes to us from a number of different avenues. There's um, 
like a, a really research driven uh, psychological tool called internal family systems. And then there's a more sort of church ministry driven tool called HeartSync. And uh, uh, what, what this stuff has revealed essentially out of the brain science matched with counseling has revealed that these different parts of our brain that are responsible for different kinds of things like self-protection, like getting things done, like remembering and feeling emotions. Well, each of those different kind of uh, functional regions of our actual brain can project a, a, a kind of subpersonality. That's I'm not saying that we all have multiple personalities. I'm saying that um, you know what you're like when you get into business mode, or when you know when you're just feeling really feely. You know, it's just kind of like oh, I'm just I'm, my heart's big and I'm feeling really raw right now. You're like we know that we kind of shift between these different modes when, when we actually pay attention to it. And so those different parts of our brain actually can kind of project their needs and desires into our kind of psychological framework. And what happens over time is that they can actually get kind of out of sync with one another. So you start with the, the amygdala, which is this little organ in the brain that is responsible for our fight or flight freeze reflex. It's what floods us with adrenaline. Your amygdala is what's kept you alive all these years. It's what helps you outrun a bear. Actually, pro tip, you don't run from bears. But nonetheless, it's what helps you uh, suddenly find the strength to lift a car off You know your trapped friend. All these amazing things that we see people do the amygdala is responsible for that, for moving us into urgent action. Uh, the fascinating thing about the amygdala is that it possesses the ability to override certain parts of the brain. Most specifically, the left portion of the brain, which you know most of us probably know is responsible for kind of cognitive developed thought, rational thinking, the sequencing of time, different things like that. Uh, Scientists have actually observed the speed of the connections between the left side, the right side, the brain stem, and the left side of the brain is just incrementally slower than the rest of the brain. And so what the amygdala does is in times of uh, when, when it's triggered into a survival response, it shuts down that rational left side because essentially we don't have time to think through this. We don't have time to do a cost-benefit analysis on this scenario, my friend. We need to get you the hell out of here right now. Or... Like you're about to be attacked. We need to armor up and respond. All these different ways that, that we respond to things around us. That's what happens in the brain. That's not righteousness. That's not sin. That's not something you can even choose. That's just how the human system is wired to react. And it's not just the human system. Uh, lots of animals possess similar framework within their brain. So think about the amygdala. Think about its ability to override other parts of the brain. And all it's trying to do is keep you alive. Okay, moving into the left side of the brain, you know, as, I, as we just said, this is all kind of your cognitive, rational, high-functioning th thought. It's what you think of when you think of thinking. And uh, that part of the brain is trying to get stuff done. It's trying to move through life and do well and achieve and function and get things done. So it kind of resents being shut offline by, you know, your amygdala. It's like, hey, excuse me, uh, I'm in charge here. <laughs> I'm the thinking, rational, smart one. And then the other thing that it really doesn't like is uh, strong emotions, right? I mean, they get in the way. 
They prevent you from performing. If you are a performance-driven person, big emotions are uncontrollable and they prevent you from being perfect as you would like to be. And so there's this kind of tension between the, the left side and, and the right side. So coming to the right side, we have this, this emotional memory world where there's no sequencing of time, where everything feels current and everything feels eternal, where we have all of our positive and negative memories, all of the pain that we've ever experienced. So all these parts of our brain work, work together. And ideally in a healthy system, we can kind of lane switch. We can feel our feelings. They don't dominate. They don't override other things. We can feel them. We can release them. We can be functional. We can um, respond to emergencies in a safe and healthy way. And it's a beautiful package, except for the fact that, you know, all kinds of things go wrong. And so my children spit toothpaste in my face and I'm immediately triggered and I have like a level 10 reaction to probably like a level two or three offense. Like spitting is gross, let's be honest, but it's not like a level 10 crime, right? And I fly off the handle because some part of my amygdala interprets what just happened to me as a survival level threat. Maybe something happened to me when I was five or six years old that uh, maybe was a threat. I mean, if I think about it, I do remember being spat on when I was a kid by some kid who didn't like me. And that felt incredibly horrible and violating. And I didn't have any kind of grid for that as a child. And so there are those parts of your memory that don't understand that time has passed. And that suddenly you're thrown back into that same place of, <gasps> I am an experiencing an existential threat. And so I have this massive reaction and after the fact, I feel terribly ashamed. And I go, why did I do that? I know better. And so if you can start to go, oh, yeah, the left part of my brain actually gets offlined. The rational part that knows better actually gets offlined when I'm triggered in those kinds of scenarios. I can go, okay. And so we can work through those things. So uh, what's fascinating about the whole thing is that you can actually kind of talk to those parts of the brain. You can talk to those parts of yourself. And the first time I experienced it, it was very, very weird. And so if you're listening and you're like, that's kooky, I don't blame you for thinking that. Uh, I, would, I would humbly invite you to consider, do you already talk to yourself? Do you pump yourself up when you're doing something really difficult? Do you like, okay, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. When you're going to go cliff jumping for the first time, do you like, okay, we can do this. We can do this. When you've done something really stupid, do you talk down to yourself? A lot of us do. That was stupid. I can't believe you did that. You are an idiot. So we already do it to a certain degree. So this is just uh, an intentional way to lean into that part of me that says, okay, thank you, amygdala, for protecting me. Thank you for keeping me alive. You do a really important job. I need you. Uh, I, I want to humbly suggest that while being spat on as a five-year-old was a very scary thing that happened, I am no longer five years old. And so I would like to invite you to dial down a little bit and let's figure out what we can do uh, regarding this scenario. Okay, talking to my left brain. Thank you for getting everything done. You're amazing. You function so well, your output is immense. 
it's okay to rest. It's okay to take a break. It's okay for us to feel our emotions. We're not going to get stuck there forever. We will come back to getting things done. Talking to your emotions, it's like, okay, I see you. I feel you. That Those are big feelings that you've got. That's a lot of pain that you've got. And, uh, you know, and what happened to you was wrong. Feeling sadness over what happened to you is the right thing to feel. That's healthy. Feeling anger over that violation that happened to you, that's exactly what you should be feeling. That's what anger is for. Thank you for sharing these feelings with me. I need you. Let's release some of that energy so that we can continue to do the other things we need to do, like functioning. But I'm not going to shut you away and ignore you. So, so some of the, the, the basic tools that we can use to talk to those parts of ourselves and, and help them come back to harmony and synchronization with one another, because that's, uh, that's often what happens is we just kind of get out of sync. Um, and, and, and I think most of us kind of know that intrinsically when we look at, around at our friendships, we're like, yeah, wow, that person basically just lives out of their functional side, don't they? And that person ugh, has probably spent a little bit too much time towards the right emotional side and they're a mess. Um, and I think even our Christianity, like in the West, we are very biased towards rational thinking Christianity. And I think it can be so jarring for folks when they come to, to experience like a liturgical service for the first time. And it's so much more embodied and emotive. And they're like, oh, or, or uh, Marty, as you were saying, you know, you've been in both reformed contexts and now a more charismatic context. And especially, you know, Pentecostal charismatics are often much more expressive emotionally within worship. Uh, and that can be very jarring if you're not used to that. So all this kind of stuff plays out around us, but it also plays out within our psyche. Yeah. And um, in your book, the the guided meditations that you do um, were so helpful in connecting with those different parts. And, you know, the also listeners to you, you really have to check it out because um, Jonathan wonderfully um, brings in uh, Jesus into the conversation and then has you introduce the different parts uh, that he was just speaking about to Jesus. And there's actually, um, there's a section in the book, Jonathan, where you kind of tell uh, like your own parable of Jesus meeting these three different people and dude like that. I had to like put the book down, like walk away that like broke me. So it was, mm. it was so good. Um, so helpful. So yeah, thank you for that. I'm so glad I, I felt very, I I've, I've spent all my childhood in, in theater school and I love to act and playwright and so on, but it's a part of my life. I get very little airtime today. And so I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a screenplay about Jesus walking into a bar or, or like three parts of your brain walk into a bar and they sit down and how broken their relationship is with one another. And they've all defaulted to their roles and they don't get along, you know? And so that means that your amygdala is probably like already an alcoholic and is well known to the staff of the bar. Your emotion is like a child and has never been to a bar, but is super excited. And like your functional self sees no point in any of this. And so what happens when they meet Jesus? Um, and how Jesus, like, because what I've experienced is that Jesus just gets us. He understands. And he's so relentlessly kind and compassionate. And while we would run ourselves down, Jesus only ever speaks affirmingly. And he will just look at that part of you and say, 
you have done so well. And, and, and we immediately like, yeah, but look at all these other things that I did that weren't so well. And Jesus is like, cool. So I'm just so glad you're home. Um, kill the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you're, you're touching on where I wanted to go next as you're talking about the three different views, the, the, the three different voices, um, something that I struggle with. And I know Josh does, and I'm not saying that because I'm criticizing him. I'm saying that because we talk about it regularly um, is our own internal critic. Um, the, the phrase you are your own worst critic is uh, in, like just absolutely true about me. Uh, like mm-hmm. I drummed, for an hour long worship service last night. And uh, I got in my car high on the night, like super excited. Then 10 minutes into my drive home, I was almost home. And uh, I started thinking about, there was like maybe two spaces in the, in which I kind of messed up a little bit. Like I didn't play exactly what I should have played or, you know, I went to go hit the snare drum and I missed or something stupid like that. And I like internally criticized myself for like a really long period of time about that. Like, it's just like, uh, and I know that that's like a practical application, but I know that people and myself as well, we are our own worst critic when it comes to anything. And it's not just practical. Like I played the drums and I made a mistake. It sometimes is bigger, way bigger than that. Um, can you talk about how to deal with our own internal critic, but in a healthy way and kind of give us some examples of that maybe? Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's a very common experience, right? Um, What's what changed it for me? I, I haven't I haven't struggled with that chronically, but I have I went through a period where I suddenly did, where suddenly out of the blue my self confidence was annihilated, and I'll share the story really fast. Basically, I was working at at a at a, a charity, and it was really really small, tiny team, and I'm I'm like an ideas guy and kind of a systems thinker and an innovator. And basically everything that I was bringing to the table was just not where they saw the organization going. And so it wasn't a good fit and I, I left. But in the, in the meantime, I just kept getting shut down, shut down, shut down, like proposal after proposal, suggestion after suggestion, burn, burn, burn. And it hurt and it sucked. And when I, I bumped into this inner critic during kind of a meditative time where I was sort of trying to unpack some stuff and, allow some trauma to come up and receive healing. And if this sounds really unspecific in the book, it's laid out in very specific details of how to do that, how to talk with Jesus, how to invite your trauma forward to meet with Jesus for healing. But what happened was basically this voice emerged and was just so proud of itself and was like, yeah, I figured that if I run Jonathan down, then he will stop proposing things. And if he stops proposing things, he won't get rejected. And so it was absolutely a manifestation of a part of me that was trying to protect me. And so while this is going to play out differently for everybody, what I would start by saying is, depending on the events of your life and your story and how you were raised and your early formative experiences, is it possible that there's a part of your psychological framework that is trying to keep you out of certain failures and into certain behaviors like perfect performance in order to avoid pain, right? Like 
if your parents required a high degree of perfection from you, then it makes sense that a part of you would want to always be performing perfectly so that you are living in your parents' love. We can talk about the problems of that parenting style and we can talk about how that's unsustainable, but if we can start to see that inner critic as actually intending to do well for you, we can start to move towards it with affirmation. And that's the really tricky part because ultimately an inner critic is a voice born out of shame, right? Something happened to you and some part of your brain said, this must never happen again. The problem is, is the inner critic uses shame to keep you from feeling more shame, you know? And so it doesn't work, but it's, in a sense, its intentions are good. And so what I tell people in the book is to win over an inner critic, you need to affirm it, which will disarm its own shame. And then you need to lead it to a better way. And so, so what, I, what I do with me when I feel that going on is, is I, I try to get really affirmative and compassionate. And I try to say to that part of me, okay, Thank you for trying to keep me from harm. That's kind. That's good, kind work. Like that, that's good, kind intent, let's say, to keep me from harm, to keep me from shame. I don't like shame. Uh, I, I'm thankful for the efforts that you have put forth in my best interest. I wonder... If you know Jesus, do you know Jesus? How well do you know Jesus? Speaking to this voice in your head. Have you noticed that when Jesus brings people out of shame, he doesn't cause collateral damage? Is that of interest to you? Would you like to protect me in a way that doesn't also cause pain? Uh, would you like to come and sit here by the fire with Jesus and let him speak to you however he would? And if you've never connected with Jesus that way, maybe that's going to sound really weird. But what I find continually is that Jesus literally just rocks up and is like, oh, hey, uh, let's hang. And and it's transformative. And so... Uh, if we can see, I think to, to sum that up, I think if we can if we can recognize that that an inner critic is really a voice born out of a shameful experience that desires to keep us from shame, which is good, but that only has shame as the only tool in its belt to do that work, then we can start with with compassionate affirmation. We can say thank you for doing your best, but maybe we can lead you to a better way. And then it seems to kind of reabsorb into the fullness of who we are. And, and typically we find the, the intensity of that voice starts to fade. Yeah, I, I can really speak to that. And I've been looking, I've been looking for a new job um, over the last year, essentially. But, you know, mainly my last job was a ministry role. Uh, it ended um, in pretty traumatic fashion. Mm. Um, I'm so sorry. Not, not, not only for me, but, but, you know, I would say more importantly for that church, uh, just the way that things went. Um, and so it's, there's been a lot of that inner critic that has 
said to me, well, you're, you're never going to get another ministry role. I mean, that's never going to happen. I mean, you know, once, once you share what happened in this place, there's no way that anyone's going to ever want to hire you again. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've been in position, I've been in position where I've talked with other churches about ministry roles, and then I share what happened and then they don't want to hire me again. Um, and so that inner critic at times, even outside the realm of me pushing my own self down, it's actually been right in some, in some capacity. Um, but then there's also been times where I've been, you know, like with the church I'm attending and volunteering at and helping just on the team in general, uh, where I've been just so affirmed uh, over and over and over again. And man, that feels so much better. <laughs> of course. I mean, it, 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 anyone, people want to be affirmed more than they want to be uh, cast down and, you know, pushed down into the ground. Um, but I think as I've been kind of thinking through that thing, you know, why do I feel like ministry has to mean that I'm the person in charge? Why can't I feel like ministry is the, is the opportunity to be being part of the team and serving um, but then being in a spot somewhere else where I'm ministering to people, um, maybe through my volunteering or just being a part of the team. Um, so yeah, it's that inner critic has been, it's been damaging, but it's also in some ways it's led me to say, um, I'm going to look at this in a different way and find ways that I can still be a part of the, what God wants to do in his kingdom without feeling like I have to answer the critic or, or, or just be pushed down all the time. And, and so, I mean, there's, there's been a both and, but um, yeah, I'm working through that. It's, it's been interesting to see. It's good. It's really good. It's, it's not easy, you know, and, and we have years of, of this behavior of all these different things. And like I said, we have, we have plenty of evidence that corroborates those voices. Right. Mm-hmm. Um but ever, ever, ever does, does the Lord God call us to a higher way of love and compassion and grace, right? Like, do you love God because he shamed you into it? <laughs> oh, I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do know people that have, that do, you know, they, sure. they, they look at their, they look at the coming from that more, you know, you're such a sinner mindset right. for, um, for some people I, I was i forget who i was talking to but i had somebody on my show and he was like look for for some people those chick tracts worked it got you in like if you were threatened like if you're driving home from this meeting tonight and like, you get in a car accident will you burn forever yeah like for, for some people that brought them into the kingdom well yeah. that's cool fine great but let's keep going yeah right yeah. journey progression yeah. <laughs> development life <laughs> right yeah the um the eternal critic for me is all, like that's perhaps the biggest thing that i um have been working through just with myself and my own uh you know times of con- uh, contemplation and um also in with my spiritual director and stuff like that cuz mostly what i'm what i'm discovering is there's there's three main issues um that i'm dealing with one um and none of, none of this is a false sense of humility like this I believe everything I'm about to say, so I, I just want to preface it with that. Um, one, uh, I genuinely believe that I don't have anything to add or say or contribute um, to the the conversation as a whole to the world. Second, I don't feel like I have the authority to add or say or contribute anything. And third, it's all couched in this uh, this fear of rejection, um, but with a slight nuance, because I think it's more so a fear of being misunderstood. Um, Because when you pour your heart into something with the intent 
of helping other people and then you're misunderstood and rejected because of that, that's insanely painful. Um, and there are some very significant experiences in my life that like have set me up <laughs> to, to feel the way that I do. Like one of the exercises that I've been doing is um, recalling a time when somebody told me that I don't have anything meaningful to add or to say, which was all I heard at the first church I worked at. And then thanking that part of Josh for um, basically shutting down to guard my soul. Right. You know, like you were saying, affirming, like, thank you for protecting me, but now I don't need, I don't need you to do that anymore. That's it. Um, so those, those are the things that personally I've been going through a lot um, as well. So your, your section on, you know, those last couple of days were insanely helpful. Mm, I'm so glad. And I'm so sorry for that pain. I know it very familiar. I'm very familiar with it. It's real. And it takes, it takes a lot of scary, painful work to turn inward and wrestle with those things. Um, but, yeah. but it can change. Yeah. And it is, yeah. and, it is. And the, the scary part too, is that it's, it's pushing me into different places that are uncomfortable uh, because it's pushing me into places that I don't know exactly. <laughs> and, and exactly. to, to leave some things that I do know um, behind, but uh, for greater purposes. Um, you know, God is uh, calling me to move into something else that, uh, that I can do. So, yeah. It's good. <laughs> it's a good journey, it but is. good doesn't mean easy. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's not easy. Ondi Culber, who uh, wrote the foreword and is a precious friend, she writes a lot about this thing of, of giving parts of ourselves, especially like if we think about our, who we were when we were seven, eight, nine, 10, 15, 20, whatever, giving those parts of ourselves the things that they needed, they didn't get when they needed them. You know, because trauma, trauma is not just the big bad things that happen, like violence and war and, and assault. Trauma is also the absence of the supports we needed when we needed them. And I didn't, that was really life-changing for me because I grew up, you know, with a happy child, you know, two parents together, at least until I was 18, um, which is another whole thing. You know, divorce as an adult is still really traumatic. And, um, and so it was really helpful for me to understand that, that, you know, when my dad was dealing with depression, significant clinical depression all throughout my teenage years, and he wasn't there, I need I needed someone to be there. And I didn't receive some things that I needed. And that was traumatic. And being able to, to now, you know, as a 34-year-old, turn towards 13, 15-year-old Jonathan and say, hey, I know that there were some things you didn't get that you really needed. And I would like to give you some of those things. You're okay. You're made of the right stuff. What else does a 15-year-old boy need to be told? Like, you are okay. You are all right. You are made of the right stuff. You are going to do great things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, I like that you said that because that's kind of the direction uh, that I'm feeling pushed into. I want to, basically, I want to become the person uh, that I needed when I was, um, 
you know, 15, 16 years old. I, I want to become the person that I needed when I was working at the first church where Marty and I met, you know, and dealt with all the emotional and spiritual abuse that, that happened there. And um, I want to be the person uh, that I needed right now <laughs> for somebody, you know, in my, in my current uh, walk of life. And so that's, that's what I want to, you know, pursue. I'm super interested um, in spiritual direction um, life coaching, that kind of stuff. So I'm trying to take the steps to, to make that a reality, so but yeah. And to close the loop with the first question on yeah. enoughness and Jesus, that work that you're describing, Josh, become meeting those needs that you had and meeting the needs you have now, that's not work that eclipses the Lord. That's not a replacement of Jesus. Jesus enables that work. The, the Spirit, we cannot do that work without the Spirit indwelling us, without us living in the vine, bringing to bear the cross of Christ on our traumas, on our past, on our loves. That is part of being the image bearers of God in this world. And Jonathan, thank you so much. This is just... This has been an amazing conversation. There's There's been a few people that we've had on the podcast. Um, every one of the guests we've had has impacted me personally. I know they've impacted Josh, but there's been a few people that we've had on that just impact you, I think, in a little bit deeper of a way. Um, you just have a genuine nature about y- who you are um, that um, is... I, I'll say it this way, and I don't mean it to be an over-exaggeration. I truly mean this. You you perfectly embody the comforting aspect that is the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, and it, it's it's comforting to talk to you, but um it's it's it goes beyond comfort. You're not just a comforter without anything else to give, but you you add so much um just to our show. So thank you for coming on and um, where, where can people find you? Where can people find this book? Uh, is there anything you're working on that you're excited about? Where, just give us the, a great conclusion. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, thank you, Marty, for saying that. That, that means so much. That, that, would be, that would be my dream, that people walk away from me feeling like they've walked away from love. So hmm. thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. That, will, that will certainly, uh, I will carry that through my day today. <laughs> uh, friends can find uh, me at jonathanpuddle.com. There's blog, podcast. Uh, you can find my pod- my podcasts uh, anywhere you find podcasts. It's called The Podcast. Felt like that would be a huge missed opportunity if I didn't do that. It doesn't work well for autocorrect, unfortunately. So like from a branding perspective, it kind of blows, but uh, I thought that was too good to pass up. Uh, and you are enough learning to love yourself the way God loves you is available from pretty much all the major book retailers, Amazon and elsewhere. It's also available from me directly. If you'd like a signed copy, you can go to jonathanpuddle.com and buy one. I have just finished recording the audiobook. Uh, depending on when this airs, it might be on the market. Right now, you can buy the audiobook from my store, but it will be on Audible and everywhere else within the next few weeks. So, uh, find that there if you prefer audiobooks, but it's obviously an ebook and everything as well. And I'm on social media at Jonathan Puddle. Do you, do you do the, um, do you do the audiobook in a complete, um, official New Zealand accent the whole time? 
<laughs> you know, I wish I could. I wish I could. I, I, I'm tempted to try it for you right now on air, but I'm not going to because my countrymen who may be listening will be so offended. Uh, I've lived in Canada since I was 13. Yeah. So as you can hear, it's pretty... It's a it's a mixed stream, <laughs> but then you have you, you have phrases like "rock up" and you know like "God, you hot," you know <laughs> that come out and it definitely comes. Uh, you, you just need to have a whole room full of helium balloons so that you can you know do it that way. You know. <laughs> can I? Okay, let me see if I can do it like Murray. Uh, God, you hot with all diligence, Brett, for out of it is the wellspring of life. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. You're great. Uh, yeah, Jonathan, thank you again so much uh, for this interview. Thank you for the the work that you do. Um, it's super important. Um, it has impacted me significantly, and I know it will continue to do so. Um, and I know it impacts others as well. So keep doing what you're doing, and I appreciate it. Thanks, bro. Yeah, guys. And uh, as always, go Caps. And Blackhawks and the Ducks for Jonathan. <laughs> Peace and love, guys. <laughs> <laughs>